Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, a fortnightly podcast where we take a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. This week, we're taking a look at driverless cars. When you think about it, we've already got quite a lot of technology in our cars that makes them more driverless, automatic braking systems or parking assistance. And equally, we know that the government is currently concentrating on trials to ensure that trials of driverless cars can be safe, so it's unlikely that driverless cars will appear on our streets in some sort of big bang in the next couple of years. Once driverless cars are on the streets, will they increase or decrease congestion, and are we going to have to redesign our road network so that they can operate safely? I've asked these questions to Isabel Dedring. Isabel is former Deputy Mayor of London with responsibility for transport, and these days she heads up the global transport team at the engineering giant Arup. Isabel, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to ask first off, actually, it might seem a funny question, but what's your earliest memory of taking a journey? (laughs) I don't know. Oh, I do know. It was when my brother was born and I was almost four going to the hospital, you know, the realization of doom that you're not going to be the only child anymore. That's a dark moment. So I don't think it was related to the journey. It was related to the fact that I knew something big was happening. I remember driving in the car to the hospital. And in general, how do you think most people experience journeys? Do they care about their form of transport? Yeah, I think there's something really interesting in the transport industry. Everybody who, most people who go into the transport industry go into it because they think transport's really interesting and cool. They want to talk about the trains and the tracks, um, but normal people don't care about any of that. You know, successful transport is transport that's invisible. And we really struggle to understand that as an industry. So I think success for us is defined by being as seamless and really not noticeable as possible. But that's not really, I think for a lot of people, that's not a very inspiring message. You know, it's like be invisible. So it's an interesting challenge for the, for the industry. And your first journey was a car, you know, the journey you remember was a car journey. For me, it's probably a car journey. I imagine squabbling in the back of a car with my brothers on the motorway. Um, do you think that the, does the car have a particular kind of place in the, the psyche or makeup of people's lives? Well, that's, there's a whole debate going on at the moment about this, isn't there? I think a lot of people, so I'm 45, a lot of people in my generation and certainly the older generations, you know, would feel that, Everybody who can afford a car kind of wants a car because it's part of their identity. And even if you're, you know, progressive, sort of recognize that there's this deep-seated desire to have one. And then people say, but the younger people who are coming, you know, coming up through the system um, aren't getting driver's licenses. They don't own cars to the same degree as people previously did. This is a fundamental sea change. Um, And is it because people can't afford cars or is it because there's a really fundamental change that's going on there? Is a car more that you know is it part of your identity and you in your in in a previous role with deputy mayor for transport in london where does the car and car drivers where do they sit in the kind of hierarchy of what decision makers in city hall care about yeah well london's really unusual because in the center of london 
Um, you know, we've heavily restricted private car use, but we've also taken away capacity on the road and assigned it to things like buses, uh, pedestrianization. So there's been a 30% reduction in road space that's available for private cars in the center of the city. And the result of that is that we've seen a mode shift out of car and into other things, you know, more walking, more cycling, more use of transit. And that's a trend that isn't usual around the world. You know, typically you're seeing the, re- the reverse trend. But that's been partly because of the geography of London and partly because there's been some politically brave decisions that have been taken. So I think a lot of cities can't see their way to doing something like that. They might want to or like to do it, but they, but they don't know how to do it. And do you think that the, is the car driver a particularly unusual or difficult political customer. It's interesting because I think people think that, you know, well, certainly in this country, at least in the UK, if you know, you say anything about roads and everybody just runs a mile, which is compared to rail, it's a really interesting phenomenon. But actually, in my experience in politics, when I was at City Hall, car drivers are one of the least vocal constituencies compared to, for example, cyclists that tend to be very well mobilized, very vocal, often from groups that um, know how to have an impact in politics. Whereas car drivers, I did a big piece of work when I was at City Hall, where we tried to create a road strategy for the city, drawing it. And what we had, we had everybody on the steering group from cyclist groups, walking groups, automobile groups, freight, lobby, developers. And the automotive industry was probably the least, you know, vocal in in that forum and and more broadly. Uh, so it's quite surprising because I think there's a lot of, you know, anxiety about those types of people. But actually in the political process, they're not very loud, at least in my experience. So I have a confession to make in that I'm not a car driver. Can um, you drive a car? Uh, I can't, which is one of the reasons I'm kind of interested in the arrival of driverless cars. Right. Um, but the the sense that I get is, you know, a lot of people talk about the enjoyment of driving a car. And and when you see car adverts, you see people kind of cruising along the coast road, having this blissful blue <laughs> sky experience. And actually, for most people, their daily commute probably doesn't look like that. Um, and so do you think that people enjoy driving enough to want to do their daily commute in a car. Do you think there there could be an appetite for driverless cars? Yeah, I definitely think there could be. I think there's just the real question is not is everybody going to one thing or the other, right? You know, the, even today we have we have cars, we have bicycles, we have, you know, you can walk on foot, you could take the train and people use a whole range of things and people don't always use the most economically rational mode of travel, right? So in in transport, the way you assess any piece of infrastructure is very predominantly based on how many minutes of time it's going to save this person to get from A to B effectively. But actually, if you look at yourself or your friends or you look at how the city operates, that isn't the number one thing that's driving people. It's, you know, a key thing. And so the transport industry, there's a fundamental mismatch between how the transport industry thinks we all think and how we actually think. Um, coming back to your question, I think, you know, for sure there will be people who, you know, don't want to drive all the city dwellers are great examples of that, where you might want the car, you know, once or twice a month to leave the city. You clearly wouldn't want to own a car for that. So I think whether it's about driverless or not, you know, the whole question of car ownership for sure doesn't match very well with people living in cities. Um And then, you know, think about railways. People are prepared to spend quite a lot of time on the train. 
In fact, interestingly, when uh, Virgin cut down the amount of time that it took to get from Manchester to London, so they put on faster trains. So instead of taking, I think it was about two and a bit hours, it went down to an hour and 40 to get from London to Manchester. And a lot of people complained about it because they said, oh, we can't get any work done on the train anymore because two hours is the amount of time that you can get on the train, get out your laptop, do something substantive, have a coffee, get off. And so, so people's sense of time is very variable depending on the conditions. So your preparedness to sit in traffic, if you didn't have to drive the car, you know, might actually increase. And therefore, my view, you know, there's a big debate about driverless cars. Is it going to increase or decrease congestion on the roads? In a city context, I think it would very significantly increase congestion, I mean, to the point of total gridlock. So as policymakers, you know, we all need to think about what do we need to do about that? And that kind of leads me on to two questions. One is the big question, you know, are driverless cars going to deliver the utopia that some would have us believe, Mm. or is there a kind of dystopia of the eternal traffic jam? Once driverless cars start to appear on the roads, assuming that testing environments approved and so on, what do you think are the issues that will start to play out for people? Well, there's lots of things you could say about about that, and maybe we'll unpick it a bit. But cities versus interurban travel and motorways, right? So the argument on motorways is that cars can platoon, they can drive more closely together, et cetera, and by definition, that must create capacity on the road. That must be true. So in general, forgetting about induced demand, where more people want to drive because, well, the whole argument for taking the train is that you don't have to drive your car, and you can sit there and do some work. But if you're not driving your car and you can sit and do some work in your car... Why would you take the train? So a lot of analysis about demand and driverless car, you know, driverless cars, will they create demand or, you know, create capacity or not, um, ignores the induced demand question to the extent that I think it's needed. But let's say, you know, broadly on motorways, I could see the argument for why it would create capacity. In cities, you know, we're already seeing with Uber in London, we're already seeing people come out of public transport getting into minicabs because the price point is close enough that if you have and if you have a friend or two friends, you know, you might as well take an Uber, you'll be better off financially than taking the bus. And so we're already seeing that sort of phenomenon. So I think that's the point is that the impact on capacity and congestion will be different in different places. And to me, the only answer to that is ultimately going to be about restricting access or price points. I'm, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just saying it's inevitable because otherwise just letting it sort of blossom in the way it naturally would blossom is is just not going to work. Um, that That's one thing. The other thing that I think people don't talk about enough is the transition. So, you know, obviously car fleets turn over very slowly. So this idea that, you know, one Tuesday we're all going to wake up and all our cars are going to be driverless, that's not going to happen. Um, and, and I think everybody's agreeing now that we'll end up there eventually. So the question is, what's going to happen in that interim time? And what is that transition time look like. And congestion is an issue that you touched on in terms of the potential for driverless cars to increase congestion. Something that I've noticed recently in London, and I presume in other cities, is an increasing focus by the environmental lobby on air quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Is there an assumption that driverless cars will all be electric and therefore they won't be contributing to poor air quality? You know, is, is this a debate that will link to air quality and discussions about the environment? Yeah, I think at the moment the discussion isn't linked and it should be. 
Um, so you've got a community of people talking about driverless cars, but it's not really thinking about how that's going to actually exist in the world. If you if you look at that uh, that debate that's going on, it's totally disconnected from the whole phenomenon of low emission vehicles now coming into the market very significantly at a price point that's affordable in a way that's attractive. To, you know, they don't look weird anymore, like little toasters on wheels. They they look like normal cars, and you know, people are starting to buy them in in much bigger numbers. But the whole debate about how we pay for and incentivize low emission vehicles in order to deliver better air quality is totally divorced from the driverless car debate. So a primary way of charging for road use and a key source of tax receipts for the government is fuel duty revenue. That's not working anymore over the, you know, really already now, certainly over the medium to long term, it's not going to work. So that needs to be connected into the debate as well, which is, you know, what's a new way of getting people to pay for the maintenance of the roads, construction of the roads. What's a new form of taxation that's going to you know, plug that hole? Is there anything that starts to, in your view, signpost the answers? I mean, it, it, I remember um, Ed Balls floating the concept of road pricing um, at some point back in the, in the noughties, as we call it. Um, and it didn't go down very well, I think it's safe no, to say. No, it's really – well, so road pricing is obviously, you know, needs to be killed off as a term forevermore, right? You know, why would you – That is like the worst branding ever. But I continue to think that there has got to be a way to frame this, which actually would be attractive and appealing to people. So I think the challenge is how can you find something that's not only politically okay, but actually might be politically better than what people have today? And and the opportunity that driverless cars and low emission vehicles create for that is really interesting. So, for example, you know, saying to people that, well, you know, you have to pay X, Y, Z, but if you have a zero emission vehicle, you're not going to pay any of that stuff for at least a period of five to 10 years. You know, that's an incentive, not a tax. And people see that very differently. The final thing on the payment side is that, you know, there is an interesting question around insurance and this whole debate about whether insurance premiums could go down for driving with driverless cars by as much as 80% or more. So again, is there an opportunity there to say, well, you know, your insurance premium is going to go down not by 80%, but by 50%. But to fill that little extra gap, we're going to have to find a way to, you know, do road pricing, but in a new, sexy, modern, we didn't say the word road pricing way. So you've struck really nicely on something that we explore here on this podcast, which is issues that politicians and policymakers might have their head in the sand about because they belong in some ways to the future so somebody else can deal with them another Mm. time and you've said well we don't have the answers um so i won't ask you what the answer is but can i ask what the answer isn't in terms of dealing with some of the issues you see coming to life through the introduction of driverless cars I think basically what needs to happen is it's not beyond the wit of man to do this. And and I think it's just happened so quickly that, you know, in transport, the smallest amount of time is 10 years. Like all time is dom- denominated in decades in transport. It's the most slow moving industry ever. You know, delivering Crossrail in 20 years, that's like amazingly fast. My point is that Uh, You know, transport industry professionals, unlike the tech industry, say we're just not used to moving at that sort of speed. So we're still digesting the fact that, you know, driverless cars are happening. So so we're trying to move quickly for for transport (laughs) into the into that space of sort of saying, okay, so what is actually, you know, here we're here. We know we need to get there. We all understand that. But how do we actually map that out? I think part of the 
you know, part of the solution is if we can tap into something positive about driverless vehicles for the public. Um, so driverless cars is, as my view, you know, from the public's perspective, is a solution looking for a problem. You know, I, I don't like congestion. I don't like pollution. But I don't really mind driving my car. You know, the, the, the problem isn't that I have to drive it. It's everybody else who's on the road filling up the space. And in fact, a lot of people like driving their car, right? It's that sense of control and it's your space and it's your castle on wheels. So driverless cars itself as a force for change is not really, I think, going to work politically. So what we need to find is, you know, tap into something that, that people do care a bit more about. Um, so we need to kind of connect driverless cars back into what really is motivating people, and that'll help the political process as well. Can I ask, let's assume that somebody manages to construct the perfect argument, kind of make the case for rolling out driverless cars, get over one or two of the kind of social mm. crinkles that appear in the way. What do you think are the real potential pitfalls? Where could things go wrong? Because my sense is you've just set out a, a great vision of what proactive, forward-thinking politicians could be doing to try and make a success of this innovation in the transport sector. In reality, some politicians don't care about things until they become a problem. And so where, are the, the, where do you think are the potential problems that could emerge over the coming years that, that really get people up in arms that we need to think about if we're going to make a success? I'm not sure about problem. I agree with you, but, but with, a, with a sort of adjustment, which is that my experience too is that pol- in politics, not just politicians, but in the political process, things don't come to the fore by anybody unless there's a kind of major burning platform which could not maybe is a we need to do something about this um so in the case of cycling in london you know there's a massive amount of pressure around 2010 2011 that you know we need to make cycling safer in london and that's why we were able to create this big cycling program and build all these segregated cycle lanes uh that are now in place in london and obviously it'd be great to have more although a lot of people disagree with that but you know that that political pressure created the opportunity to to do this sorts of things. So all I'm trying to say is that with driverless cars, it's just not connected to any of those things at the moment. And therefore, the only burning platform it's going to end up being connected to is something about, you know, some tragic story where somebody's dog gets hit by a driverless car. Like there's a recent story in California where the car overturned and then the whole thing will just go off the rails completely. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there's going to be a big bang solution to that either, which is why you also that's the other reason, therefore, that you want to kind of slowly step into this. And I don't think you want to do it under the guise of driverless cars, because at the moment it's all about, oh, look, we've got one. It's a pilot and it's running around in Greenwich in a circle or whatever it's doing. You know, again, that doesn't it, it appeals to all of the public, you know, public policy geeks and the tech geeks of which, you know, we're all part, but it doesn't appeal to, it's not tapping into anything that the public cares about. Um, so again, I think it's just having like these small interventions. When I was at City Hall, we were, you know, we were just trying to do things like get pedestrian detection and cyclist detection rolled out on the whole bus network, because that is something that people care about and they like. So inevitably with a new technology, new approach, new infrastructure, there's going to be bumps in the road, but you need enough good things to counterbalance that. So, so where are the, you know, we've got to get clear in our minds, what are the good things that this is going to bring to people on issues that they really care about. And at the moment, I don't see that story and that kind of rollout implementation plan. And therefore, you're right, all those bumps in the road are going to derail it. Because I don't think you can get rid of them. But you have to have more good things than bad things. And therefore, the on balance public perception is positive. 
And you mentioned earlier on some some brave decision making that's been taken around urban transport in London. Do you think that there are brave decisions that are going to need taking in this area? I see. I'm not sure. I still think that I just haven't figured it out yet. But you know, sorry. Invite me back some other time when I have the answers. No, I mean, we're starting to think about this as a community. In fact, I was, I was saying to you earlier, um, I'm judging a prize at the moment, an economics prize on, on it's sort of on road pricing, but it's, it's much broader. It's about, you know, how do we continue to make sure that our road network has the level of financial support that it needs and manage congestion, which is what people expect us to do. Um, and how can we do that in a forward thinking way that, you know, incorporates not some of the old technologies like, uh, you know, in, in London, the congestion charge uses license plate reading cameras. You don't need any of that stuff anymore. Now we've got, you know, mobile phone technology. You can use that so that you, you know, if you want to charge people, then you use those sorts of technologies. So it's all the whole thing needs to move on very significantly. Um, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. What was I just going to say? I'm glad it was a train of thought. You stayed on topic. <laughs> um, anyway, as ever with these things, it's not going to be solved in one conversation. It needs, you know, three, four, five years to sort of acculturate, you know, what is the issue here? How are we going to get over it? Big discussion, lots of argy-bargy. And eventually we, you know, kind of all agree as an amoeba where we're going to blob our way towards. <laughs> and before I ask a little bit about the kind of the, the, the true capacity of politicians to actually influence this at all, they're not working any of the organisations that are looking to bring these cars to the road. Um, who... Who is going to kind of own the driverless car space from a commercial point of view? Because it strikes me that people make cars and, and that's created lots of jobs and it's made lots of money and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the last still reasonably robust areas of British manufacturing. But Google, Uber, Tesla, these aren't car companies, they're software companies. So what does, what does, you know, who, who, who's going to really be the, the person who makes these cars yeah well um so i work at arab the engineering firm and we've got the same debate on buildings for example you know the value of the data collected from a building is going to far exceed the value of the building itself so you know will google have an incentive to actually build buildings maybe even for free just for the right to own that data going forward you know there's whole new business models as in cars are not the only place where this potentially is is happening. And in fact, I think I just saw something recently that it's in the public domain that Google's, you know, building a sort of smart, uh, high-tech city um, or city quarter in Toronto, which is exactly with this in mind. Um, so cars are not the only sector where the tech companies are trying to, you know, obviously make their mark. It certainly hasn't shaken down yet, though. So presumably the answer is going to be some kind of partnership the same way, you know, Leica and Kodak and people like that have partnered up with iPhones in terms of the camera technology and sort of how those two things have merged together. And presumably that's that's where it's going to go. Who's going to end up having the dominant role within that, I think, is far from clear. Certainly the car manufacturers are all very 
you know, they know this and they're anxious about it. And that's why they're trying to get into these sort of mobility as a service type of offers. But they haven't really taken off. And a lot of it is sort of vaporware. You know, it's they they're talking about it. But what does that really mean for me? And how well does it work? And is it really intuitive? And, you know, because they're not people who design apps and user interfaces, and you know, by definition, almost they're they're going to struggle to create something that's really attractive and usable for the public in the same way that Amazon could or Google Maps or whoever. Um, and I think that ultimately is going to be the driver of who has the dominant relationship with with the consumer. I mean, we've got the same debate uh, going on in my old job in terms of ticketing on public transport, right? So, you know, you used to have your Oyster card. You know, over time, that's just going to become completely defunct. So over and the Oyster card is a key point of contact with the customer. So and for cars too, you know, the, the the you know you go in, you buy your car from the you know from the from the showroom. Um, you have an, an ongoing, long-standing relationship every year when your car gets serviced. Um, all of that isn't going to exist anymore, arguably, in these new business models. Um, and and I do think they're rightly nervous about not owning that primary relationship with the consumer. I, my my guess would be that they won't be the primary owners of that relationship. And I want to ask a little bit about the role of politicians themselves mm. um, and to what degree they really have the capacity to shape this rather than kind of manage it. So is it, is it fair for me to ask the question, what should politicians themselves be doing to shape the drive to shape the rollout of driverless cars and the impact of driverless cars on society well you know having worked in politics for a while and and before that i worked at transport for london so sort of in a political environment but at one remove um you know i'm actually a massive advocate for politics as a force for change and i've just seen time and time again in london it's not necessarily politicians initiating things but politicians will whether they're forced to or choose to end up having to take a series of decisions um, at, at various stages. And they do make a huge, huge difference in terms of these sorts of things. And, um, and you know, there are politicians out there that want to be proactive and take on some of these issues because they find a positive way to tell the story to people. I mean, if you look at, you know, cycling, that was an amazing opportunity for us to take the city to a different level. And there's a long way to go still for London. But there was a step change in what we said the expectation is for us as a city in terms of what we want to be doing for cyclists. Um, and that was a political process where politicians and had to make decisions and, and they did that. Um, so I think there's, you know, you see a lot of examples of politicians doing brave things. I mean, whether you like HS2 or not, that was highly politically motivated, politically driven, and it's now happening. Um, and that's a huge piece of transport infrastructure. So I don't see why, you know, especially given that so many of our journeys in this country are on the roads, you know, the very reason that people shy away from it politically is exactly the reason that it could be very attractive politically if you had something attractive to sell effectively. Um, but again, I don't think it's it's um, fascinating how little people understand themselves about how much they're paying for roads and how they, you know, the all the insurance stuff, who even knows what goes on there. You know, I just pay an amount of money to a guy and then I don't think about it. Um, so that's, I think that's one of the challenges here is that like you said about the burning platform earlier, it's not like people understand what the issues are and they're really agitated about some of this stuff. It's just a background annoyance, let's say, and almost part of the fabric of life that you're always stuck in traffic and kind of, you know, that it's it's sort of we've all got – it's comfortable to complain about it rather than a real burning platform. And there's there are lots of new mayors all over the country right now. Yeah. Um, what would be – 
what, what should they be watching for in terms of the transport sector? What are the things that they should be? Well, again, I just think, you know, and I could had endless you know examples of experiences when I was at City Hall where as a mayor you have very little power really you know you might have a few things where you have some money but it's pa- it's definitely patchy um, and even if you control a significant amount of budget in a certain area you still have to work with the private sector work with the with the local councils so in London the 33 boroughs that we needed to work with who have very significant controls in London the boroughs control 95% of the road network so whilst we're responsible for transport overall 95 percent of the kilometrage belongs to someone else. So, you know, every mayor is going to have that same problem, which is just a patchy mix of, you know, actual powers. Um, but what you do have is the convening power and the ability to just rally people around an idea and use your limited powers to just create momentum on something. And that, I think, there's very extensive um, experience in London that suggests that you can do a lot with that. It's just all about picking your three or four things that you're going to really champion and then just putting the hard graft behind it over a sustained period of time and being tenacious about that. So what you're not going to get anywhere if you're trying to do 30 things simultaneously, right, in, in anything in life. Um, so I do think, yeah, they, there's a very significant opportunity there for, for the whole debate around our roads to be moved on. So in terms of the politics of this, if you're coupling up the, you know, some of the things we've been talking about with this sort of more step change infrastructure opportunities that the roads create. There's something interesting there, again, that I think, especially if you look at it from a city scale, you could really start to um, create some positive political momentum around. That answer in itself gives me loads of questions I could ask, but we don't have all day, unfortunately. Uh, So I'm just going to ask one last one, which is, what do you think is the, the kind of the hardest, bravest, but potentially most transformative decision that transport leaders could take in the next couple of years? In this area or in general? Both. Hmm. I do think, I mean, I when I was at City Hall, I spent a lot of effort and time, well, across the board, but on the road network in particular, because it's a really weird phenomenon that in London, 80% of our trips are on the road network, but probably 90% of transport time and energy whatever about money, but just, you know, senior transport people's time and energy goes into the rail network, which is fine. Um, but the fact remains that 80% of trips are on the roads. So why why are we just not paying any attention to that? And they have no money compared to railways. You know, they're always sort of trying to scrabble together some money to fill some potholes. So, you know, when you just think about the effect that that's having on the character of the city and on people's lives every day in terms of, you know, trip making is a significant number of hours in your in your life there's such a massive opportunity there to improve people's lives improve their commute improve their living conditions clean up the air or whatever and because we've all been sort of afraid to talk about roads and it's a bad thing and you know we haven't even started to explore some of those questions um, and unfortunately I think one of the difficulties is there's not obvious allies in this discussion. And one of the things I've talked to the cycling community about is whether, because cyclists, it's nice to have cycle lanes, but actually what you'd really like is cycle-friendly roads, um, generally. And whether we could use the success of the, and the momentum behind cycling to to instigate a broader debate around what we're trying to do with our road network over the next 20, 30, 50 years in cities and how we actually transform that um, would be by far the most you know transformational thing that 
as a community of political decision makers, let's say, uh, that we could do. And again, it's that community sort of behind the scenes. It's a sort of fifth column that comes together to get something to happen. In my experience, that's the most effective way to get change to happen in politics. Where's our fifth column for the roads? And that still isn't clear. But once we have that, I think we could make that kind of transformational change in terms of a perception of what roads could deliver for us, um, but b also delivery and implementation. That seems a perfect point to finish. Thank you very much. Thank you. So whoever knew that roads were so important? That's all for this week. But next time we'll be back and taking a look at the issue of online people power. Thanks very much to Cecilia Armstrong for her help editing and producing this podcast. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, like it, share it, or find us on social media at, on Twitter at Government versus the Robots, G-O-V-T underscore V-S Robots, Facebook at Government vs the Robots, or find me on Twitter at Tanner JC. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.